0: Imagine with me for a moment that you're living in the ancient near east. And you get word through messengers that there is a, an invading empire with its brutal army that is on the way. And there's some suggestions that perhaps you ought to suffer, you ought to sacrifice your newborn child to the god Moloch. So that the God will protect you against the advancing army. With some measure of uncertainty, you talk with your wife, who's not on board with the decision, but in the middle of the night, you secretly grab your child, who's still an infant. And you bring them to the temple dedicated to Moloch. And there's drums beating. And there's a fire flaming. And your baby is sacrificed on the altar of Moloch. An awful scene to be sure. Something that sounds like Something Hollywood would invent or come up with, but yet we know that there's been many pagan cultures, both in South America and even as we see in the ancient Near East, that practice the worship of, I'm sorry, the the sacrifice of children on the worship of these pagan gods. And I would suggest to you that it's not entirely unlike the realities that we have in our own country where every day 2,500 unborn children have their lives taken away from them. Through surgical procedures that rip them limb from limb From the inside of their mother's womb. Oh we may not call it Moloch. We may call it career. Convenience. We may call it. uh, Certain lifestyle. But nonetheless it's sacrificing our children. Our future. On the altar. Of our own convenience. This passage comes in the midst of Leviticus chapter 18. As I mentioned earlier, we've been working our way through the book of Leviticus. The first 16 chapters gives instructions related to that sacrificial system and how one was to approach the true and living God, Yahweh. And we saw how all those pictures, the blood, the sacrifice, the priesthood is all fulfilled in Christ. And then there's kind of a a, a a corner that's turned in chapter 18 and following, which is sometimes called the Holiness Code, where this is how Israel was to live in light of the sacrifice that that was offered, the acceptance that was granted before God. And so there's stipulations of how they're supposed to live. And many of these stipulations As far as how Israel was to live was they were to live holy lives set apart unto the Lord in light of God's grace and accepting them through sacrifice. This was how they were to live. And they weren't to live like their neighboring pagans or like the pagans that had lived in the land prior to them getting to the land. And so chapter 18 there's a litany of all manner of sexual perversions of incestual relationships adultery adultery homosexuality that God said don't live like that that's how the pagans lived who were in the land before you that's how the Egyptians lived and for this reason I vomited them out of the land and am placing you in the land don't live like them lest I vomit you out of the land and so it's in the midst of those prohibitions that Leviticus 1821 says, And you shall not give any of your seed to pass them over to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am Yahweh. And it might initially seem strange why this prohibition against sacrificing your children. To this pagan god. In the midst of all these prohibitions. Which is a common theme in all of them. Is some kind of sexual immorality. Some kind of sexual perversion. Well it seems to me. The common theme has to do with seed. Or offspring. And namely. The destruction of the family. Each of these things, whether it was incest, whether it was adultery, whether it was homosexuality, whether it was bestiality, it was a perversion of God's gift of sex that would destroy the family unit. It is a satanic agenda to destroy God's design for the family. It was 34, 3600 years ago, and it is today. Satan has old air and new dress, but it's air nonetheless. And so, this morning we're going to look at uh, this passage. And notice in verse 21, then my first point is the prohibition of God against child sacrifice. The prohibition of God against child sacrifice. It says, do not give any of your seed, your offspring, to pass them over to Moloch. Now it's an interesting phrase to pass them over to Moloch. And it seems the idea of of, of instead of them them being devoted to Yahweh, they get passed over to these pagan god, this pagan God of Moloch. And some, to be sure, suggest that this is talk and this is uh, that that this is passing them over in the sense that they're given to the pagan gods for them to be raised as a prostitute in the temple of Moloch. And there, there is a possibility of that. It would seem to make sense within the context of all these, again, prohibitions related to sexual immorality. But there's enough evidence elsewhere in Scripture that when a child was devoted to Moloch, it was not to be a prostitute in the temple But it was to be burned in the fire on the altar. Deuteronomy 12.31. Elsewhere in the Pentateuch. Moses writes. You shall not do thus toward Yahweh your God. For every abominable act which Yahweh hates. They have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters. In the fire to their gods. And so this was again a, a... somewhat common practice among the pagans that God has to instruct his people, don't do this. Don't sacrifice your children to any of these pagan gods. Now, a little bit of question as to who this god is that they were instructed not to sacrifice to. His name, as we see in the text, is Moloch. Now, there's fairly good evidence that this is a kind of a play on words that Moses is using here. The Hebrew word melek means king. And the Hebrew word for shame is bosheth. And so many scholars believe that the vowel pointings of bosheth, shame, have been attached to the word king, so that it's molech instead of melek. And so the idea would be, as Moses records this, this is a jab at this pagan god. The the, the one whom the pagans regarded as king, he was not king, he was the shameful king. He was the shameful king. Such a shameful king that he would even call and summon for the sacrifice of children. We say, who... I mean, people really did this kind of stuff? Yes. Moloch was the god of the Ammonites. If you remember the Ammonites, they were a people group that arose from the incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. They they were one of those people groups that were uh, living in Canaan that was regularly a thorn in the side of the Israelites after they were in the land. This cult to Moloch, some scholars believe that the, the image of Moloch was, was was one in which his hands were outstretched. And the priests of Moloch would place the baby into this 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 flame that was underneath the hands of Molech and and the hands were crafted in such a way in which the baby would roll over the hands into the fire. There's even some archaeological evidence as this was practiced amongst the Phoenicians in Carthage and probably made its way into the area of Canaan, that uh, that 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 some of the fragments of the babies and their remains that survived, their femurs were broken. We say, why would they break the femurs so that they couldn't crawl away from the fire? But that they remained in these fires. We may think surely God's people would not fall for such wickedness and vileness well later on in 1st Kings chapter 11 verse 7 under the reign of King Solomon it says then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem and for Moloch the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon And so there were seasons in Israel's history where where as as often the, the seduction of the Israelites was not to totally abandon the worship of Yahweh, but to intermingle it with the worship of other pagan gods so much that even some of the Israelites offered their children in sacrifice to Moloch. In fact, it was even... Ahab's son Manasseh, who was said of him that he offered, he had his children, uh, his sons pass through the fire, which was a phrase to speak of sacrifice to Moloch. And then, of course, during the, the years of reformation and revival in ancient Israel, when, when that boy King Josiah ascends to the throne and he wants to bring about reformation after he hears the word of God and he tears his clothes and repents, one of the reformations that he brings about in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 9 and 10, it says, Nevertheless, the priests of the high places... Did not go up to the altar of Yahweh in Jerusalem, but they ate the unleavened bread among their brothers. He also defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire for Moloch. So, so one of one of Josiah's reforms was to defile the place where sacrifices were offered to Moloch. It was in the Valley of Hinnom. And, and one of the ways in which he did that was he made it into a garbage dump. Which had perpetual garbage fires burning there. Which, by the way, when we come to the New Testament, did you ever hear of the, the word Gehenna? The Greek word? It's, it's the land of Hinnom. Hell becomes a, 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 the, the, the language of hell as a metaphor of a perpetual fire like the valley of Hinnom. We see it as well in Jeremiah 32, 35, and 6. It says, They built high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben Hinnom to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch, which I have not commanded, nor had entered into my mind that they should do this abomination. To cause Judah to sin. In other words God said. It's it's unthinkable to me that they would do this. Now therefore thus says the Lord. The God of Israel concerning the city. With which you say. It is given into the hand of the king of Babylon. By sword, by famine and by pestilence. It comes up as well in, in, in Psalm 106 verse 37, 38. They sacrifice their sons and daughters to the demons. And they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. And so this was something that God warned them about in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus, don't do this. This is what the pagans do. And even in this context of Leviticus 18, God says, this is why I vomited them out of the land. This is why the book of Joshua happened. And and, and I'm going to drive them out of the land in my hammer of judgment against this people. But then God says, don't be prideful. If you do it, I'll do the same to you. And that's exactly what he winds up doing. As Israel followed in the footsteps of their pagan neighbor, God brought the hammer in Nebuchadnezzar and the people of Israel were taken into captivity. You read the book of Daniel. That's the time of captivity where the temple had been destroyed and they're kidnapped and taken away to a far off land. This was God's way of judging His own people. This is a prohibition. A prohibition that is, for one thing, against idolatry, right? Right? This was not worship to the true and living God. This was worship to a false God, a pagan God, that which is not God, that which Moses himself says is offering sacrifices to demons because demons inhabit any false God. This is how Satan works. He works through deception, getting people to worship and turn away from the true God to false gods. It's all satanic activity. But not only that, it's not only idolatry but it's gruesome murder. The taking of the life of a, of a child who cannot defend himself or herself. A child who, who, who lacks the ability to, to protect themselves. A child who is the most vulnerable of society. And to burn them in fire. And we think we are far more sophisticated than the ancient pagans because we have smartphones. Because we have electric cars. And yet the reality is is that the problems of humanity are still the same. child pornography is pervasive where children are sacrificed for the pleasure of perversion statistics tell us that 13% of women who walk into an abortuary, to have the life of their unborn child taken, professed to be evangelicals. Our hands are bloody. And God sees it all. And there's a principle that we see in the Bible that that when justice is not brought forth for crimes, especially the crime of murder, God speaks of the, the blood crying out from the land. Because justice is not brought forth. And I can't help but think of the screaming blood of unborn children in our midst whose lives have been taken from them who's screaming out for God to bring His hammer of judgment. That is the prohibition against child sacrifice. Secondly, the punishment of God against child sacrifice. Turn over to chapter 20. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel, or from the sojourners sojourning in Israel, who gives any of his seed to Moloch, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones." So here God says in in chapter 18, this is what's called apoditic law. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. Okay, And then when you get to chapter 20, it's what you call casuistry law. Where if someone does such and such, this is what is supposed to happen. And so the text says, notice the, the kind of blanket prohibition where it says, you shall say to the sons of Israel, any man from the sons of Israel or even the sojourning sojourning in Israel. So the, the, the standard was not only for the Israelite, who was supposed to be worshipping the true and living God, but even for the sojourner, the alien, the, the foreigner, who might have grown up in the, the first church of Molech. says this standard is even for them. If they're in the land, if they're in the area, they must abide by the laws of the nation. And in a theocracy where God is king, this is my standard. He says they are to be stoned with stones. They're to be put to death by stoning. What an awful, awful way to die. But nonetheless, this was the standard. Life for life. That was the, the principle that God had given for the judicial courts of the Old Testament, right? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. That wasn't a principle for personal relationships, you know, if you, if you, uh, you know, do this to me, then I'm going to get back to you. No, it was the principle for the magistrates to use as an exercising principle. If someone does this crime, then there must be this retribution, this justice, when the, when it comes to taking the life of a child, the punishment was death. And yes, to be sure, in our world, there's a kicking against it. You saw recently that young man who took, I think it was 19 lives in Parkland, Florida. And in the state of Florida, the, evidently the jury is the one who is the ones who are to decide whether the person gets the death penalty, there was one holdout on that jury, unwilling to have that person who took 19 lives put to death. And people rail against this standard, but really it's the standard that God had set from the beginning that in the day you eat of it you will surely die. Death is the requirement. And and the reality is is that uh, Capital punishment is always 100% effective. Every Moloch worshiper who sacrificed their children never would sacrifice their children again because they were dead. Every murderer who is executed never murders again. There's no recidivism, if you could pronounce that word. There's no repeat of the crime, it's always effective. But then, notice verse three: "And I will set my face against that man. I will set my face against that man, and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some those who are a seed to Moloch, so as to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name." In other words, God is saying, "You might think he might think that this was this was just." Something he was doing against his child. Or he might have thought this was the best of the options he had, you know, if he was desperate. Maybe there was an invading army or maybe there was famine or, or something. But God says, no, I saw it and my face is against it. He has taken the life of a child who bears my image. Gordon Wenham in his helpful commentary on Leviticus, he says, profaning God's name occurs when his name is misused by a false oath in Leviticus 19.12. But more usually it is done indirectly by doing something that God disapproves of like idolatry in Ezekiel 20. Or by breaking covenant in Jeremiah 34. Or by disfiguring oneself in Leviticus 21. By these actions Israel profanes God's name. That is they they give him a bad reputation among the Gentiles. This is why they must shun Moloch worship. In other words, God's saying, my name is profane because you are doing that which the pagans do. You're not showing devotion to me. You're taking the life of one who bears my own image. In the second part, or in verse 4, it says, if... The people of the land, however, should ever turn a blind eye to that man when he gives any of those who are his seed to Moloch so as to put him to death. Then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him, in playing the harlot after Moloch. So, notice the language here in, in, in verse 4. He's, now, God is speaking not only of the one who commits the idolatry and sacrifices his child to Moloch, but those who know that it's happening and they turn a blind eye. They close their eyes to it. They act like they don't see it. It's happening, but they don't do anything about it. In fact, again, Wenham says, if the people close their eyes, prosecution was left to the individual initiative it was always easiest to ignore an offense and let sleeping dogs lie indeed those most likely to know something uh, uh, know about someone's apostasy to moloch would be close neighbors members of the family who would naturally be most loath to prosecute but loyalty to yahweh must override the ties of blood and friendship If a man puts family loyalty before devotion to God, God says, I myself will set my face against that man and against his family. So this is strong language here. That not only was God forbidding and prosecute any who would sacrifice their children to Moloch, He was saying, if you know what's going on and you say nothing about it, I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to set my face against you and against your family. And the idea of setting one's face against it is the idea of of God's face of judgment and wrath. You you think of the the, uh, Levitical blessing, the priestly blessing that that, that sometimes we we speak at the end of the service from from Numbers, I think it's chapter 6. The Lord bless you. And keep you. Cause his what? Face to shine upon you. And keep you. The the idea of God's face shining upon you. Is the idea of being a recipient of God's favor. God's kindness. God's grace. But God setting his face against you. Is the idea of cursing. The idea of judgment. The idea of provoking almighty God. It is not. The face that you want God towards you. And here. Moses says this is what happens when one does this. But not only when one does this. When one knows that it's happening and doesn't do anything about it. When one puts perhaps family allegiances or friendships above loyalty. Loyalty. To the true and living God. Deuteronomy 17. 2-7. I think highlights how this might. Judicially play its way out. In ancient Israel. If there is found in your midst. Any man of your gates. Of the towns which Yahweh your God. Is giving you. A man or a woman who does evil. In the sight of Yahweh your God. By trespassing against his covenant. And has gone and served other gods. And worshipped them. Or the sun, or the moon, or any of the heavenly hosts, which I have not commanded. And if it is told you, and you have heard of it, and then you inquire thoroughly. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an investigation, there's due process. <clears throat> Behold, if it is true, and the matter is confirmed, that this abomination has been done in Israel. Then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed in your, to your gates. That is the man or the woman, and you shall stone them, and they will die. And then notice this, verse 6, on the mouth of two or three witnesses. So again, this is proper due process. This couldn't just be he said, she said, one person's word against another. No, there had to be two or three witnesses. There had to be substantial testimony. And then not only this, it says on the mouth of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death and he shall not be put to death on the, on the mouth of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. <clears throat> and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. What is he saying here? In other words, there wasn't some hired executioner here. The first person to cast the stones were to be the ones who were the witnesses testifying in this criminal case now that's significant because this would have been I would think a deterrent for people who collaborated and lied right I mean if you had to be the one who was beginning the executionary process you would want to make sure this was the man this was the person who did this evil deed We see something similar in Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 11. And again, this was in the context where loyalty to the Lord had to trump loyalty to family. If your brother, your mother's son, your son or your daughter, your wife you cherish or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, let us go, serve other gods. "...whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you, or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other, and you shall not be willing to accept him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, and you shall not spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him, your hand shall be first against him." To put him to death. And afterwards the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death. Because he has sought to drive you from Yahweh your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. Thus all Israel will hear. And be afraid. And never again do such an evil thing among you. And so these, these were the punishments. This was the punishment. It was a capital crime to commit idolatry and a capital crime to commit idolatry and murder and sacrificing your child. And there was a kind of a due process that was brought forth. But if the person was convicted, then they were to be executed. And again, to our 2022 ears, this sounds harsh. And you may even be one who's bought into the lie. Well, Matt, this is the God. This is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is a lot nicer. And while it is true as New Covenant believers, we do not live in a theocracy. Last time I checked, it was a constitutional republic that we are residing in these days. And so we're not living under Mosaic law in this sense. We don't stone idolaters or those who sacrifice their children to Molech. But nonetheless, God's standards and God's knowledge is still the same. Because when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, Revelation 21 says 21 8, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In other words, while we may not live in a theocracy today, the punishment, the consequences for unrepentant murder, unrepentant idolatry, is not stoning but is eternal damnation forever and ever in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. The Bible's teaching on hell is even more clear in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament. Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody in all the Scripture. In fact, He is the one who uses that word, Gehenna, a place of burning, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where the fire is never quenched. And the worm never dies. He uses the term Gehenna, I think, 13 times, maybe 12 times. And I think James uses it once. First John 3.15 Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The penalty... In the Old Testament was physical death. The penalty most clearly in the New Testament is eternal death. Eternal damnation. But God, the true and living God, is a God of mercy. A God of forgiveness. So that even one who who we see writing the bulk of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who engaged in murderous activity towards a faithful servant of the Lord in Stephen, who is breathing out murderous threats, who calls himself a murderer. He is the one who can say in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, here is a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am. Am Chief. <clears throat> God is so merciful. He will take your guilt and place it upon the back of Jesus. So that all the punishment you deserve in hell is swallowed up in Jesus. And you can be forgiven of all your sins. No doubt in a room this size, there are some in this room who have either gone through with taking the life of their unborn child, encouraged somebody else to do the same, or knew of somebody and did not seek to persuade them. And we have bloody hands. But I tell you on the authority of God the Almighty who has given us His Word in the Scripture, you can be forgiven. Romans 8.1 says, Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. But you need to start with owning up to it. Not bearing it, not denying it, not blaming it on somebody else, owning up to it, and confessing it to him. And coming with humility, saying, God, forgive me. I trust that Jesus died for this sin just as any other sin. Well, that's the punishment. We saw the prohibition, the punishment of child sacrifice, now the practical application concerning child sacrifice. We live in a culture that may not, again, have statues of Moloch in their backyard. Every day, 2,500 unborn lives are killed. And so, to be sure, the first application is we need to persuade others. Persuade others. We live in a a culture of death that, that, that seeks to pervade lies, to continue the propagation of taking the life of unborn children. And we need to be equipped to be able to convince others. That's we, we, one of the reasons I love the work of the Pregnancy Help Center that, that takes ultrasound machines and, and, and shows a mother the life of her child. It's pretty hard to deny that this is a child when you see an ultrasound picture of a little baby swimming inside of them. And, and, and now we have... You know, multi million dollar ultrasound machines that, you know, earn 3D graphics, which, you know, a baby does look a little bit strange without skin sometimes and <laughs> needs to put on a little bit of weight, but that's a baby. That's a baby in there. We need to unmask the lies that are regularly thrown our way. We're told, well, this is, this is about a woman's health care. No, my friends, it's about a child. I mean, all the arguments that are thrown the way that, that would propagate to being pro-choice, pro-abortion, they never deal with the issue, what is that unborn child? At what point does it become a child, a human being? They, they never want to deal with the question. They never want to deal with it. Sometimes it said, my body, my choice. Well, it's not your body. That's another human being inside of you. When you go into the doctor's office, they check the heartbeat of a child. Does does a woman have two hearts? No. If there's no heartbeat and that child has died, they they don't come and try to resuscitate the mother. No, it's the baby that doesn't have a heartbeat. Does a pregnant woman have 20 fingers? Does a pregnant woman have 20 toes? No. Ten fingers, ten toes the baby has ten fingers and ten toes the DNA that child has a distinct DNA that's different from the mother I mean they're they're solving criminal cases these days by looking at the DNA right because that is unique to each human being unless you're monozygotic twin then it gets a little tricky. But every human being has a different DNA. A child has a different DNA than the mother. And so there's all these lies that are propagated. We need to be equipped. How about cases of rape and incest? And obviously that's a horrible, tragic situation in which you, we should be willing to come alongside any woman who's uh, encountered that kind of suffering but i would advocate for the killing not of the child the killing of the rapist should be a capital crime But there's other options. There's options of a, of adoption. There's an op- options of taking care of that child yourself. But, but the option of taking the life of that unborn child should not be an option. Sometimes, well, what about un- unwanted children? What about... All the child abuse that's out there. There's people who don't want their children. If, if uh, you know, if they, uh, you know, had access to abortion, they would have been able to abort their child. Well, there's people who are abused as children today. Do we just round them up and say, "Well, your life is not worth living because you get a crappy life"? So let's take your life. Let's kill you. No, we don't do that. In fact, all the social arguments will. Poverty, uh, you know, abuse, all those those arguments. Just, just fast forward that argument. Bring out the two-year-old is, is what uh, Scott Klusendorf says. Bring out the two-year-old. Apply the same argument to a two-year-old and you would have to take the life of a two-year-old child. Even if it's, uh, you know, what about viability, you know? Uh, you know, well, well, it's not a real human being until the age of viability, until that child could survive you know, on their own, outside the womb. Well, you know, I have children in my home, a two-year-old who wouldn't be able to survive. I mean, we're talking about viability. you know, some of you have teenagers who wouldn't be able to survive without <laughs> parents. You're going to take their life? They're not viable. Sorry, kid. No, no, that's that's what the Nazis did. They, you know, a life worth living. They they said there's certain lives, there's certain lives that are worth being alive, and there's certain lives that are not worth being alive. And if they deemed you weren't worth being alive, you had to go. The same sobering reality takes place in our culture. So persuade others. Secondly, push against the political machine. You know, before the overturning of Roe v. Wade, one, I think, could conceivably argue, well, you know, the Supreme Court by fiat has made this law, they invented this right of privacy from the Constitution, and really... You know, it's not that big of an issue whether the candidate is pro-life or pro-choice. Now, I never bought into that argument, but I can see it in one sense it's conceivable. But since the Dobbs decision, now it's been thrown to the states. Every single election now matters. Every single one State legislature, Congress, senators, judges, magistrates, every single one. And my dear Christian friend, if you are convinced with me that the taking of an unborn life is nothing less than murder of that unborn life, you should know who you're casting your vote for. Third... Produce and present your children to God. Make some babies and more babies. And do what you can not to offer these children unto Molech, but to offer them not in death, in murder to Yahweh, the true and living God but to present them unto the Lord. To do everything you can in the language of one author to lay the wood before their heart, to teach them the Scriptures, to teach them the Gospel, to teach them a Christian worldview, to teach them to live in this world as a follower of Jesus and pray that God the Almighty would bring fire to the wood. Psalm 127, 3-5 says, Behold, children are an inheritance from Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with the enemies in the gate. Children throughout the scripture are regarded as a blessing from the Lord. Our culture considers them a curse that is expendable. Don't buy into the lie. Don't buy into the lie. Don't believe the lies that come from the abyss that disregards children. See children as the future. Boys become men, girls become women, boys are future fathers, girls are future mothers. Do everything you can to pour your life into them to sacrifice on their behalf for the good of the future rather than to sacrifice them on your behalf. Ephesians 6 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of Jesus, the Lord. Raise your children unto the Lord. Now, some of you say, Well, that sounds great, Matt. I'm single. There's still ways you can invest in the future. Taking a young person along beside you, pouring your life into them, teaching a Sunday school class, praying for the young people in this church. Be a good aunt, uncle. Be that aunt or uncle that is a messenger of the gospel to your nieces and nephews. Fourth, consider adoption. It is National Adoption Month. Again, these things are radically countercultural. Consider foster adoption. Sadly, many children enter the custody enter into the custody of the government because their parents have sacrificed their children on the altar of something else, and because of abuse, because of neglect, they wind up wards of the state. And they need homes. They need families with open hearts and open homes to love them, to care for them, to sacrifice on their behalf rather than, again, for them to be sacrificed on behalf of their parents. And friends... is this not just like the true and living god he's so contrary to moloch god the true and living god is not a god who demands the murder of your children he is not like moloch that threatens your destruction for you to to sacrifice your sons and daughters for him He is not like the God of feminism that would call women to sacrifice to the goddess of career. He is not like the God of the comfortable standard of living who would call you to sacrifice to Him. But this God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Unto us a child is born. A son is given. He was born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law. This great God in heaven gave His Son so that you could have life. Turn to him in repentance and faith. Let's pray.